because we forget and it's very easy to forget um, what the past held for us because we're preoccupied with many other things today but it's my profound belief that the First World War still influences today's people um, never before has France and Belgium seen so many people coming to the cemeteries the attendance now at uh, Remembrance Day is, is big uh, last year I was at Anzac Day um, the Australians and New Zealanders Day at uh, Hyde Park and there was upwards of 8,000 people at dawn were there and I thought gosh that is still making this colossal impact on people and if you think about it come the 20s which there were many people alive from the 20s there were the grieving that followed the war you know where we lost nearly 800,000 British soldiers the grieving that followed that I think went on for many many years I still think it it goes down through to today and in the recent television things where people were going back to try and find their ancestors many of them were traced back to the First World War battlefields and it's reduced every single person who went back to the, the, the battlefields to tears you know it's hard to look at this young men taken away in the prime of their lives who would have no future life but I think their ghosts in many ways do uh, do li live within people today um, and and we have a, a sort of newfound reverence for these people which sort of, sort of disappeared for a long while and, um, and that's why I think young people today especially at schools and things which I go and talk at a lot they're totally captivated I mean I, I talked recently to a set of 11 year old boys and they were just completely captivated they just wanted to hear the stories about the first world not about the second world war or about the gulf war or about afghanistan but about the first world war their, their lives were somehow embedded in it really and the experiences that the men in the trenches had then is something that people are not going to experience no. again um why do you think there is still this this hook in today's generation why are they still so there's still this obsession with the, the First World War. It was like the worst war of all wars. The casualties were so vast. I mean, the casualties of the Second World War, civilian-wise, were much greater. But it's a fighting man's war, for soldiers' war. Nothing compares to it. We lost a quarter of the troops in the Second World War, which lasted six years. Um, and I suppose it was the last primitive war. I mean, there's hand-to-hand -hand fighting now in Afghanistan and, and Iraq, but this was not exactly on a daily basis, but it was flesh-to-flesh -flesh for a long time in fairly appalling conditions. And somehow it's locked us in. I think grief has locked us in in some ways and kept us... And, and this abiding memory of the First World War is, is there, the cold, the chilliness, the instantness of death in mass numbers. 
And today, you know, as farmers turn graves over in, in their tractors and things, or fine bodies and things, you know, we still with reverence go back and, and, and bury them. And this seems to engage the imagination of many people. Uh, I suppose, in many ways, what we have lost, in some ways, I feel, is a bit of perspective. And if you're searching for perspective, you know, if you're in troubled times, there were no, there was never in our history a more troubled time than 1914-18. It was the depth of trouble, the depth of despair, the depth of depression, the depth of horror. Um, there is no other record outside the terrible concentration camps and things like that that bears such a journey that we can go back uh, and look into it. It's always going to be with us, and I think it always will be with us. And I think, possibly, um, as the years go by, it's stronger and stronger. We may well climb in 20 years' time out of it and then begin to look at the Second World War, but I really do feel um, that that holds somehow a dark journey for us all. And without that dark journey, there is no brightness. When I was reading um, Last Pets Down Forgotten Voices, there's, there are other aspects that did come across very strongly, such as the role of comradeship and yeah. friendship, and also humour. Mm. These are very, mm. very important, and often things that are, are lost in the stories yeah. and the history that yeah. are told of the First World War. Um, do you think it's important to remember those aspects as well? And do you think that is something that is missing from contemporary society? For instance, if there was another World War, would you still have the mass? enlisting of, of young people as you would have done in 1940. The verbal sparring between men mm. goes on and uh, that's what camaraderie is about, you know. wouldn't say he wouldn't die for a bloke who just, you know, poured a pint over or, you know, robbed his woman off him or something like that. He mm. would, you know. I, I think, no, I, I feel very strongly that the modern generation um, could enjoy it. It's doing very well in Afghanistan and, and, and Iraq and many other places are uh, un, unspoken of. Are, uh, I think, no, the humour is certainly still there and the not too sure about defiance. I, I find defiance a characteristic slightly missing today in because they haven't had to defy anything, mm. you know, and you have to mature defiance. And in the Edwardian period that preceded the war, there was a lot of hard living which they had to put up with. So they got the humour from that. Day life is a lot easier. So you haven't got to defy the elements so much. You know, we're better equipped, we've got cars, we've got a way of life which is um, in, in some ways richer. Um, but it doesn't mean, say, when you're really I I in the pits that you're going to have that quality you might think you might have. Can we move on um, to talk a bit about Forgotten Voices? Yeah. Because I'm very interested in how you actually worked with the um, the audio archives and Imperial War Museums. Yeah. But the, the way you actually put together the book, that takes a lot of craft. Mm. How did you proceed to actually order and yeah, that's very interesting recollections yeah. into, that, yeah, yeah. into this wonderful... I did it on the hard copy, and um, then I put them all out on the floor, the transcripts, edited transcripts, everyone was edited. I then laid them out in a sequence. 
So I put them out in the morning and then I have a cup of coffee and then I go back and look at 14 again and read them again, time and time again. I think you're strangling the situation. No, this is too emotional, this is too horrifying. Break it. So I then I would have to lift a piece out or go and find another piece that's sort of what I, I called the mortar or like the bricks and mortar. Th these were the bricks, but occasionally you needed the mortar to hold them together. So I'd have a totally irrelevant piece um, about leave or about um, hardships at home or about a telegram being received. Just to break up the horror of situation. That took five weeks, solid weeks of just looking at them each day, going back, running them through, and it, it worked, it worked. That sort of um, journey um, got it right. I think the thing to do is to get them down, you know, and then do a first go at them, and then do 15, and then go back to 14, because maybe the first quarter of 1915 might have impinged on 1914, and so how much of that continues through, you know. But there was these little breaks of the history. And I wrote these histories um, just to break them. People talk to me and say, would you take a tour? I don't know with a battlefield, you know. I only know the human voice. The history of the First World War is something that is studied in schools yeah, a lot. Yeah, yeah. university in terms yeah. of your books are very much focused on people's yeah, personal exactly, experience. Yeah. The power of the spoken word is something that yeah. is even very strong. Very strong. I don't know, I, th I think that actually Forgotten Voice of the Great was the biggest selling book ever on the First World War. Mm. And there's not a single mention of a map or a campaign or anything at all. The one thing, if we're in the pit that we want around us, is not a set of campaign medals or badges or maps. It's human beings and I think that's what the book captures that we need human beings around us who, who can tell short stories comforting stories some it's a quite comforting book um, but at the same time saying that you have to go to the complete extreme of your life or your life is under threat or, or you've lost part of your body and then to make the longer journey back and I think that's what the book is about an oscillation of journeys of individuals because quite often people appear five or six times in the book mm. but you remember their name and you remember their story If we move on to the last post how difficult was it to to actually interview these wonderful men and how difficult was it for them to speak to you about their experiences? Every single one of the 21 was different every interview was very different. Some had been interviewed quite a few times. They, they knew the story quite well and they'd been interviewed a number of times like local paper always turn up when they were 100, 105. So they had this sort of matter-of-fact way that they could tell it. I would say about a quarter of the people could tell them a very good, excellent story. Everybody didn't have to worry about it, you know. Uh, they then of course, were never asked about their childhood. So that immediately made it richer for them. I never at any point told them I was coming to talk about the First World War. I said I was coming to talk to them about their childhood and their experiences in the rest of their lives. So they knew it was a whole long interview. Um, 
there was only opposition really from one on arrival who told me where he could stick my tape recorder. <laughs> and so um, it was quite interesting because there, uh, he was really quite vehement. And it had taken us five hours to get there, somewhere in the north of Wales. And he ripped, pucker off, you know, go on, why don't I talk about a bloody thing? Why don't I want to talk about it? And so I said, well, do you know, I have to say, I've come, it's taken me five hours to get here, and I think you're being a bit miserable. What? What are you saying? I, th I think you're being a bit miserable about it. Oh, I said, I don't think your father would have been very impressed with that, your lack of courtesy. My father really ruined my... He was away. He was extraordinary. His diary had his diary, and I never read a diary like it. He wasn't quoting them. They just gave me the diary, so that sort of that was vital to the story. So I could fit in his extracts as well. And also, he'd also had been interviewed as well by a family friend about twenty years earlier. So I was able to box and cox that. Again, it was always sent back to them so that they could look at it or have it read to them. In most cases, have it read to them. And none of them changed a single word, um, which was interesting. But it, you have to be in very close to them, uh, much closer than you and I are, and hold their hands. Most of them I held the hands of the people to talk to them. Once they got going on the childhood, which was always very rich, they, they were away. So occasionally, their son or daughter, quite often in their 80s, would come and sit with you. In one case, his son had never heard his story, and he had never told his story. So he was 105, mm. telling his story, his 83-year-old son, who was in tears throughout the entire interview, listening to the story that his dad was, was telling. Uh, and it was very hard, you know. And then this remarkable man, he had been a cavalryman, and um, obviously his great love was horses. It was raining when I was doing the interview, and at the end of it, we were trying to get a good picture of him, and I thought, we're not going to get a good picture in this light. So when it stopped raining, which it did, we then wheeled him outside, and we wheeled him out to uh, a, f a field. There was a sort of nice garden, and we wheeled him along the garden, and he's looking at this field. He couldn't really see what was going on, very much, but there was a horse, a white horse, and this horse came galloping up towards him, and he used no tricks at all, and got this extraordinary picture, I mean that was a cavalryman at such rapport with a horse, so yeah, each one different, but each one very rewarding, but always they, they came through with something, an odd line. Mm. Uh, spoke through and Oborn's great line of course when I was, was leaving was to say to I said to him did you have lice and he said oh, no 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 they had me if you don't mind I'm, I might move on to talk a little bit about the poetry when did you first encounter the poetry of the war I suppose I was about 18 or 19 as you would expect before I sort of discovered the first war poets and you know you go immediately to your Owen and Sassoon, and Rosenberg, and Thomas. Some of the other haunting poems, I Have a Rendezvous with Death, Yeats's poem mm. has always haunted me. I've spoken to many soldiers, many wars now, and 
often they they could tell who was not going to come through the sort of melancholy that possesses some soldiers mm. and possesses some civilians mm. in ordinary life. You, know, you think, well, whatever you say to them, mm. stroke them, kiss them, curse them, hit them with a wire brush, you ain't going to move them from the state of mind they're in. And, and I think that poetry was an, an interesting way of looking at what it is that makes human beings tick at a, at a much more profound level than just your ordinary daily discourse. The poets meant nothing to the average First World War soldier. Mm. They, I don't remember many of them talking about them. I, I suppose they intoxicated me, really, and kept the vision alive of the First World War. And I suppose brought about a quality to my life, which I hadn't given too much thought of, and that was irony uh, and the juxtaposition of, of the horrors of the war and yet being able to produce such extraordinary, beautiful words. And you think, how did they do it? I mean, e even the cadences and the nuances of the poems, you think, well, surely you've just seen your best friend killed or people bayoneted and heads blown off. And yet, somehow, uh, the richness of the human soul was able to bring about these extraordinary words um, in, in simply appalling conditions. Maybe that's what keeps their immortality, really, that, you know, in most of these grotesque surroundings, such beauty could arrive on, on the tongue, mm. you know. I, I may not survive this war, but my words will. Mm. And Levy says this amazing saying, which I used to have above here, are there better words than these words? And if they're not, then you should have written them. And that has absolutely stayed with me. The, the the spirit of those soldiers stayed with me. So when I did forgotten places, it was absolutely firmly in my head that no one was ever going to write these down again. The story was only ever going to be told once. So it had to be told as well as it could possibly be told. And it didn't matter how many hours I put into it. A lot of people have described... Uh, Forgotten Voices as a piece of poetry and can see mm. the poetry really. And that's in their words, nothing's added mm. by me.